Hello and welcome to episode 95 of the Page One podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco and thanks for joining us at the Page One podcast where we like to speak to writers about their writing careers, hear how they got started in the industry and try and get as many hints and tips as possible. And we hope you had a great Christmas. Uh, we had a week off from the podcast, um, but there's, you, you could have taken that time to listen to one of the 93 previous guests is that right yeah, yeah because I think so. we had one no, double 92 mrk was on twice oh that's Although true but he had two different two episodes, episodes that's yeah, true yeah. Yeah, yeah. anyway there were a lot of previous guests <laughs> that i'm sure i'm sure you would have enjoyed so um please do check that check out the back catalogue if you if you haven't had a chance to but uh, we have another great guest this week we do indeed for this little what do you call this bit between christmas and new year kind of the lost days, it's just like yeah, exactly. a wasteland, the, isn't it? The time that no one ever knows what day it is. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, it doesn't matter what day it is because you can listen to this next episode right now and it is a chat with Chris Hammer, who's a best-selling Australian crime writer and journalist. Um, he's perhaps best known for his Martin Scarsden series of books, which begins with Scrublands, which came out in 2018. It was a pretty big deal yeah, back at the very big, It's still yeah, a big yeah. deal now, but it was a, it was, it was a big launch. He, he he talked to us about uh, Australian fiction in particular and Australian mm. crime writing and how it, it it was for a long time regarded as I suppose the run of the litter. It wasn't yeah, yeah. globally. It wasn't viewed as a as a big thing. Which, as I say in the podcast, I find surprising because you know it's such a diverse country and it's got you've got the absolute desolation of the sort of outback areas and you've got yeah. the multicultural cities. So it's got a lot of things to play with as a crime writer and I think we're now starting to see that with people such as him and Jane Harper and and, yeah, and others yeah. coming out of Australia. Yeah absolutely and it's um, it's a really fascinating chat, he's a really nice guy and his new book is well it depends where you're in the world, Treasure and Dirt is its I think worldwide yeah. name but if you're in the UK it's Opal Country is the name mm. of it here so his new book, that's out in January um, 2022 so very yeah, timely so episode. Can, Exactly, you can hear about it and then immediately go and pre-order it and purchase it. So, <laughs> exactly. so it'll arrive for you next week. I think it's the sixth of January. It might be out. That's the date I've got in my head. But um, it's a great episode. He's a he's a really lovely guy and uh, really fascinating because he had this previous career as a journalist where he was traveling all over the world. Uh, he also worked very briefly, as we'll hear, as a political oh, uh, right. consultant <laughs> uh, and. Um, we do talk about that thing about you know the the Australian crime fiction and how it has exploded in the past few years, yeah. And hopefully will continue to explode because, as I say, I think the sort of stories we're getting out of there are are really good. I, I mentioned the Eric Banner film, The Dry, which is based yeah. on Jane Harper's yeah, novel. That's which a fantastic, was really great. And and you're right, it's it's a it's, it's strange that it's not as big as it should be. That kind of this kind of area of 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 or this area of the world where the writer's coming from. But it's it's great that it's now kind of having its moment because it's it is different and it's it's varied and it's unusual. And it's new voices and it's it's a it's a really exciting time. I think if you're a fan of crime fiction, Australian crime is definitely something you should be looking at. Definitely. So uh, we'll get straight into after a quick advert for our writer's notebook, and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat um, and to let you know when. Our next season of episodes will begin. 
But for now, on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy, and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Which is, uh, did you always want to be a writer? I think I did. I'm just not sure that I, that I knew I wanted to be a writer. But yeah, I always had a hankering to do something creative. And um, you became... Well, you worked as a journalist for for thirty years. Was did you view that as something? Did you always have a hankering to to write fiction as well, or was journalism enough writing to begin with? If you see what I mean, I, I um I did try and write a novel in my twenties. Um, it was appalling. I know, I know a lot of writers will tell you this, but, but if there was some sort of competition, I would win. Truly appalling. Uh, I didn't see journalism as a stepping stone to creative writing. I know some journalists who have done that, some writers who have done that, have been very strategic about it. Um, I was nowhere near that clever. Um, but I think journalism did equip me with some skills uh, to help in writing fiction. Uh, and I had a great career as a journalist. I don't regret it for a moment. Um, I got to go to some amazing places and do some good stories, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, for all that I love journalism, nothing compares to writing books for a living, you know, just, you know, just making shit up. It's just, yeah. it's glorious. <laughs> and and you, because you did write uh, a two non-fiction books before you went into the fiction world, The River and the Coast. And I kind of wondered about them. Was that, I wondered if that was a kind of way to tease or to test the water with terms of writing a book, but maybe keeping it more kind of similar to the day job? Or was it just a case of you, you just wanted to write something? 
Um, I wanted to write something. I was getting, by that time, I'd had some very uh, privileged jobs as journalists where I could go off by myself four weeks to write a story, or uh, often it was for television. Um, and as I say, in the 1990s, you'd go off into the middle of Russia or the Caucasus or somewhere like that, uh, pre-internet, and just disappear for weeks on end and work on a story. And that was an amazing era. Uh, but for whatever reasons, including family reasons, I found myself back here in Canberra, where I'm speaking to you from now. I spent a lot of time as a political journalist in and out of covering national politics in Australia over those 30 years. And I found myself back doing daily news and I felt it really frustrating because it had none of the real creative input that some longer forms of journalism do. And I found myself um, uh, working for a major Australian paper called The Age, which is the principal quality paper in Melbourne. Um, and I was covering the environment and there were two big issues back in um, whenever it was, 2008. Um, and that was climate change and how to deal with it. And the problems with Australia's rivers and how to deal with, with that issue. And um, move forward, you know, 13 years or whatever it is, they are still the two biggest problems <laughs> facing the environment. But the debate about the rivers was very... Uh, it was very complex and it was being run by interest groups. So it was incomprehensible to me and it was definitely incomprehensible to a lot of the readers. So I got an offer to write a book. I packed up, I traveled all the way through the Murray Darling Basin, which is Australia's biggest river system. That's about twice as big as France. So big area. And I traveled all the way from the headwaters in Queensland, all the way down to where the Murray River's enters the sea in South Australia into the Southern Ocean. But what I was really writing there was travel writing. So it's narrative nonfiction. You can be very impressionistic with travel writing. It's not just a recitation of facts, like, you know, if it is in the history or, you know, I, I was allowed to, you know, get a bit purple with the prose. I was allowed to mm -hmm. write what I thought of things. Anyway, I wrote those two books and I learned three things from that. The first was I could actually write a book because, you know, you dream of doing it, but until you've actually done it, you know, do you actually have the, the chops to pull it off? The second thing that I learned, which almost came as a surprise, was I really liked writing. I really liked the writing process. You know, a lot of people like the idea of being a writer or to have published a book, but they find it a real grind to actually sit down and, and, and pump out the words. And strangely, I found it very rewarding. Um, unfortunately, the third thing I learned was there is no money in writing books in Australia. So I had to pack <laughs> it in and go back and, uh, and get a real job. Um, and fortunately, the, the company, The Age, which had, which had generously given me a redundancy, hired me back then in the Sydney Morning Herald. But I was doing um, more video production for them. Uh, so I wasn't writing very much. And I'd got the kind of the taste for writing books. So I started writing the book 
that was to become scrublands almost as a kind of hobby, a bit more seriously than that, in that I thought I could write a book that was good enough to get published. I couldn't do nonfiction because I didn't have the time for travel or research. So it was, you know, I have to make it up. I thought crime fiction was good. So, and I just about finished it and had it off with an agent um, when I got sacked. So it was kind of good timing that I had this book out there in the market just as I lost my job. And you, you said earlier that, that, that journalism, although it wasn't a stepping stone to writing, um, it did help you in some ways with, with writing, with your creative writing now. I mean, what, what lessons or, or experience did it give you that, that's helped with creative writing? Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a couple of things. There's a couple of advantages, but there are disadvantages. One of the big advantages is that it demystifies the writing process. You can't, um, you can't wait for inspiration if you're a journalist. You can't ring up your editor and say, hey, I don't think I'll file a story today. I'm not feeling inspired. You know, you'd be out the door you know, before your feet hit the ground. Um, and I also learned something else from that is some of the days when I f- least felt like writing in journalism were often the days when I ended up writing the best stuff. And I realised, you know, writing doesn't come from inspiration. Inspiration comes from writing. The more you're writing as you, as you enter the story, that's when the really good ideas come. So that was a, a big thing. And just the discipline of writing um, and having been a political journalist here in Australia and a, kind of like a roving foreign correspondent, I think that gave me some good insights into how the world actually works. I was never a, a crime reporter, but I did some crime stories. I did sit in some court cases. I did go out on patrol with, say, police officers uh, here in Texas, in Germany. Um, so I, I think it... It gave me a lot of, if you think of, you know, people talk about talent and to be a writer, all you need is talent. That's one way of looking at it. Another way is you need a skill set. And journalism helped give me at least some of the skills necessary to write, you know, successful fiction. And when you when you sat down to write that, that first book, the... Um... Scribblands, the, the the first book that wasn't a non non fiction book. You know, how was writing that compared to the non fiction stuff? Was it harder to write Scrubland compared to the River and the Coast, or was it easier? Was it because of the? I mean, I imagine a lot of research went into the River and the Coast. A lot of the stuff that you can maybe did in your day job, whereas Scrubland was there more room for freedom, imagination. Was that easier or harder? I found it very liberating because I didn't have to worry about that research. I didn't have to worry about protecting sources. I didn't have to worry about defamation laws or contempt of court. Um, so in that sense, it was, it, it was easier. But also there's a kind of buzz that comes with fiction, I think, of making stuff up, of, of kind of creating this world, not reporting on the world. It's one of the great frustrations of journalism in the end you're just reporting what other people are doing. You know, there's this sort of neutrality that you need to build in. 
that's one of the problems as you as you sort of change to fiction can you lose that neutral voice that reporter's voice and instead take on the voice of fiction which is more you know you're trying to bring the inviting the reader into a make-believe world even if it's set in a real place like edinburgh or sydney or wherever you know you, you there's that creative voice that you need to capture and i found look i just i love doing that and am i right in saying that you'd you'd just started working for uh an mp when the book deal for scrublands came through is that right and you quickly gave that yeah, job so up. My, <laughs> my meteoric three-week career as a political <laughs> advisor. <laughs> so I, I, I lost my I, I lost my job with uh, with a newspaper company. They were very good. They gave me you know a few months, and I ha- and I had this new job to go do before I left. Um, and that was going along. Uh, it was difficult because it had a lot of travel involved. Uh, within Australia, but long distances. Uh, my wife travels a lot internationally for her work. Uh, children, it was going to be very hard. And then I got this incredible book offer. Um, so I've been there three weeks and I, I told him I was going. He, he was worried. He's worried he'd done something wrong. <laughs> but um, that was all right. There was, a, there was a sitting of parliament coming up. So I got him through that and then, and then I was off. And I mean, I mean that to have that kind of success with the first book must have felt like you struck gold. No, that's that kind of um, that gold every writer wants is that to have that much success in the first deal that you can afford to give up the day job and just kind of focus hundred percent on on the writing. I mean, was that was that quite an amazing feeling to have that? Yeah, I I honestly um, didn't know that that was possible in Australia. Um, I'd heard stories of, you know, bidding wars at, you know, London Book Fair or the Frankfurt Book Fair and things mm-hmm. like that. And I'm, that's for that's for overseas, you know, writers overseas. As it was, um, we had six or seven publishers bidding here in Australia. Wow. Uh, about the same in the UK, about the same in the United States. Oh, wow, that's fantastic. So, it was, look, it was unbelievable. I remember going to Sydney with, with my agent and sitting down, we're going around and visiting all the, all these publishers. And I'm saying to her, what do I say? You know, how do I convince them? And she's going, no, 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 hang on. <clears throat> You're not pitching to them. They're pitching to you. And like, I'm a, you know, I fell off my chair basically. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, and you know, it happens once or twice or three times a year here. And, you know, I know in the UK it's probably something similar. Every, every year there's, a, there's an author for, that the stars align and there's all this buzz about their book and all the publishers want that book. And, yeah, it's, it's, and because of my experience with a nonfiction book, particularly the first one was received well, it won a prize, it was shortlisted, didn't even make it into some bookstores it um you know i don't know how many copies it sold you know 2000 2500 something like that um in retrospect i think that was fortuitous because that was what i was expecting yeah for scrublands i wasn't trying to write for a market or to impress a publisher or anything 
like that. So it actually it ended up being a good thing. But when when these bids came through, I was I mean I was completely gobsmacked. I was I was laughing and I was crying and because you know in that instant I understood that my you know my life had changed and you know this dream had come true. And oh, Scrublands obviously has then it's become the first in in a series. When you sat down to write Scrublands, did you always have the idea that the story would continue, or was that as a result of its success? Um, no, a bit of both. It's quite a bizarre way of going about it. I did have an idea of writing a trilogy, but not the sort of trilogy you think of in crime fiction, which are three self-contained books Mm -hmm. featuring the same protagonists. I had this idea of having a story that extended over three books, and I'd actually sent Scrublands off to the agent, prospective agent, who fortunately was too busy to read it, and so her assistant read it. And he came back and said, look, the first 70% is great, but in a crime book, you've got to tell the readers who did it and what happened. Uh, <laughs> and, I mean, as soon as he said it, it's kind of like, oh, duh. I mean, how obvious <laughs> is that? So I went back and, 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 and re- throughout the last 50,000 pages, completely rewrote it in a couple of weeks, um, about three or four weeks. Sounds very impressive, but a lot of that was actually bringing plot lines forward you know, from, you know, I'd already done a lot of work on the second book. I ended up throwing out, rewriting in three times and throwing out a couple of hundred thousand words. Wow. Uh, because I was learning on the job. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hadn't made any kind of objective calculating study of the norms of crime fiction. Um, so I really, because I just thought this was a, I just wanted to write a book. And I was hoping it would get published. So I really was le- learning on the job with, with Scrublands. So um, I'm lucky it, it landed in such a good place. And once, once that came out and you, I mean, I mean, I assume it was a multi-book deal that you had um, when, you, when, when you first signed, yeah. And, and so when, when it came to writing the, the next books, what was that like in comparison to writing the first one? You know, because you, obviously you have this, unlimited time to write book one then suddenly you've got nine months a year to write book two was it was a pressure a good thing to help or was it was it a bad thing it I, I didn't have any huge issues of you know that second book syndrome um, how can I possibly do this um and I think part part of that was because the story of scrublands and the you know, it's got multiple plot lines. None of them were really based on my story or a real story. I think writers can have a problem if, you know, they've got this, they tell their own story, maybe fictionalised, but then have a problem creating the same emotional attachment to a completely fabricated story. Mm-hmm. So it's, and having, having rewritten the end of Scrublands a few times <laughs> with vastly different endings, I thought, no, I, I can do this, but the top... But you're absolutely right with the time limit because I'm floating around, you know, with my feet off the ground, enjoying this great experience of being a, a, a 
well, a, a published author. Um, and my publisher here in Australia said, well, you know, you, we'd really like to get a book next year um, to consolidate you in the market. And I said, look, yes, that, that makes perfect sense when you're thinking. And she said October, October publication, which, which is a huge compliment because in Australia, the Christmas market and the summer reading market are the same market. Like the vast majority of books in Australia are sort of sold October, November, December, and, and a bit in January with people cashing in their Christmas book vouchers. Um, I thought, oh, good, that, that gives me a bit of time. And I said, when would you like the, um, when would you like the first draft? And she said, oh, February would be good. <laughs> and I thought, this was, I don't know, this is probably October. I was going, right. So <laughs> silver, silver was head down, bum up. And, um, and I did pretty well until the end. And I had just had this little idea. I went, oh, I know what I'm going to do. So I choked out the last 40,000 words again and rewrote <laughs> it. Um, but I, ma I managed the deadline. Um, and then I'm not sure I, writing books get any easier, but that sort of the, the timing of it, the logistics of it, you certainly get better at that, knowing whereabouts in the process you actually are. And does that, um, just going back to the, the, what you were saying about journalism and stuff, do you think that ability, which a lot of writers find difficult to do, to take a knife to um, to your work like that and, and throw out so many words, do you think your journalism experience has helped with that, that you're not so precious about what is already on the page? That That's a really good observation. I think that's true. Anyone who's writing journalism gets edited, even if it's been cut for space in a newspaper. When I worked in television, I, I had two long stints working for a, um, like a current affairs program, filing long reports, half hour reports, documentaries, if you like, from foreign countries. And you, you, you do a paper cut, then you do a rough cut. And you know, half a dozen people that sit in the edit booth and just pull it to bits, just shred you. You'd be sitting there and you'd be arguing the toss and no, no, that, you know, and you get used to it. Yeah. Now, I work with a, an amazing editorial team at the Australian publishers, Alan and Umland, and they really are outstanding. So, how stupid would it be for me? as a kind of a novice author, not to listen to what they're saying. You know, it's, and it, in that sense, it is something of a team effort. They're incredibly respectful. I'll never change anything without, you know, it's more like referring it back mm. to me, asking questions, whatever. Um, but I think that's right. I mean, I, and it's quite an arduous process, editing a book, to the point that, that, um, a lot of authors, me included, by the time you finish that last proof edit, you, you can't actually bear to read your own yeah. book because you've just been over and over <laughs> and over it. And, you know, there's times where it's a bit tough, but I really appreciate it because at the end of the day, those people are dedicated to making your book the best book it possibly can be. And and when, you you know, you've you've chucked out a lot of your own work and you've you started it again from scratch etc you know 100,000 words here and there 
how do you know <laughs> when something isn't working? How you know how how do you know what to keep and what what to chuck? Is it a kind of gut feeling or is it a is it a logical things just aren't clicking together properly? Look, a bit of bit of both. I do think that a lot of successful authors across genre are quite good at critiquing critiquing their own work. Um, I I it's almost for me like I've got two states of mind. When I'm when I'm writing, I'm very much in the story, so I'm very subjective. You know, or if you like, I'm writing with my heart. And then I'll go back and review. And if you like, I'm reviewing with my head. I'm editing with my head. I'm going, uh, does that make sense? Or is that just too long? You know, that passage there, that's fantastic. But, you know, you've got to kill your darlings. It slows the pace of the story. Um, I think, once again, that's possibly something that journalism helped me with. Um, you know, I, I, I come back from overseas and I have these bags of videotapes and hours and hours and hours of interviews and whatnot. And you need to, you, you need to cut it down. And that, that, that glorious piece to camera you did as the sun was setting over the sea it actually no longer makes sense <laughs> in the story. So out it goes, yeah. <laughs> and it, when, you, when you're writing your fiction work, are you someone that... Um that plans it out or, or do you sort of discover right if you like and have an idea and see and see where it takes you yeah the latter often often called a pantser yeah. as in rights by the seat of uh, their pants i'd like to be more of a plotter but it doesn't work for me because if i plot something out i'll start writing and then i'll just get a better idea or something won't ring true. And so all the plotting goes out the window. Um, I think plotting sounds a lot more efficient. I think I'm getting... Be- so, so my books typically are quite complex as far as plots go. They'll have three or four or five different interwoven plot lines. And so people say, how can you possibly be doing that if you're... Um, if you're kind of pantsing. Uh, what, what I'm doing, though, is I'm thinking all the time and it's evolving. So I'll start with a seed of a couple of ideas, maybe what the crime is, maybe some idea of who did it or what the, the denouement is, but not how to get there. Other plot lines, I kind of know what the crime is, but I've got no idea, you know, who did it. I think now I'm getting better. So typically my books have a, um, you know, we follow protagonists, but they're not sort of the objective, disinterested, stand back and observe, work out the problem type of, they're involved emotionally, they've got skin in the game. So in this book, Opal Country, for example, there's two new protagonists, um, Sergeant Ivan Lukic and Detective Constable Nell Buchanan. And reasonably early in the, in the narrative, both of them for totally different reasons, they've never met before, but for totally different reasons, both of their careers are under threat because of things that have happened in the past. And part of the story of the book is um, how they deal with that, how they deal with each other. I mean, at times it would probably be more advantageous to throw the other one under the bus, as it were. Um, 
And it also gives them a really extra motivation to solve the crimes and find out what's going on because they desperately need a win. So I like, I like those characters to have skin in the game. So I think before I start the book, I'm thinking about that. Then as I'm writing, the, I really don't know where I am completely until I've got a first draft done. Uh, but that was often the case with journalism too, that long-form journalism. So I'm reasonably comfortable with that. So I, I typically now write in the morning, but then in the afternoon I'll, I'll do some exercise or housework shopping and all that sort of stuff. But I'll, it'll be ticking over. Mm. And the more into the writing I get, you know, once I get past that first draft, after a while it's start sort of consuming my mind more and more and more so until the last few months of writing I'm you know I'm kind of inhabiting that world maybe not 24 7 but a lot of the time mm -hmm. and so you 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 mentioned Opal County there which is your uh, latest book I think it's Treasure and Dirt outside the UK um, but do you want to tell us a bit about the book and, and what it's about okay so my first three books um, Scrubland, Silver and Trust have as their protagonist a rather flawed journalist called Martin Scarsden and his partner, Mandalay Blonde, who, who, who ends up being a point of view character in the third book, Trust. I decided to give them a bit of a rest because, as I was saying, there's all these different crime plots, but there's a personal plot there. And I wasn't sure how much further I could take it with those two. So Opal Country features these uh, two new protagonists who both end up being police officers. I didn't think I could have Martin Scarsden in another book. He does get a mention. He's sort of off, off stage, if you like, in this. But I thought if I had another journalist as a protagonist, it would just seem like Martin Scarsden like. Mm. So this is I guess in that sense, this is more of a, a police procedural. So the book, the book starts in this town called Finnegan's Gap, which is in Outback Australia, um, up on the New South Wales-Queensland border, many hundreds of kilometres inland, uh, very hot place. And we're with a group of ratters. Now, um, ratters are opal thieves. They're the lowest of the low, you know, total scum of the earth because they're living in a small community. They're getting wind that one of their mates has had a strike. So they go and plunder the mine. So we're with these ratters. They're down an opal mine, but instead of finding opals, they find a body of the miner, a guy called Jonas McGee, who's not only been murdered, he's been crucified. So they get out of there. They want nothing to do with it. But at least they've got enough um, decency to make an anonymous call to the police. And so the narrative proper starts with these two detectives arriving who've never met before. Um, detective Sergeant Ivan Lukic is a rather experienced homicide detective from Sydney, but he's being assisted by a fresh new detective, not a homicide detective. Um, called Nell Buchanan, who comes from the far, far west of New South Wales in a very tough town called Burke, um, a real place. Um, and they get to this town and it's, it's wide open. It's like the Wild West. And 
so there's these ratters, there's the eccentric miners living in a squatter's camp called Dead Man's Well. There's this rather sinister cult-like church, very unpopular in the town because it recruits adherents and then sends them off opal mining. And there's a couple of big billionaires, like nothing to do with opals, more like cold, iron ore, all the, all the ways that people in Australia become billionaires. And they've got this rivalry that's gone back decades but plays itself out on the stage of this small town in the middle of nowhere. So, and one of the questions, I guess, for the readers, how do all those things fit together? Are they related? If they're related, how are they related? And what is going to happen to Ivan and Nell? Awesome. That sounds fantastic. And I do have to ask, you know, where do you get your ideas from? You know, is it is it a, <clears throat> a logical process that you sit down and, 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 and work on? Or is it something that kind of comes to you a little bit? Is it something that's been inspired by your journalism time? Is it techniques you can learn? You know, I, I always find this question difficult because a lot of the time I don't know where the ideas have come from. It's almost like I need to unpack my own process to work it out. Some yeah. things are really clear to me. It's, it's, it's obvious. So Martin Skarsden, uh, you know, uh, is a journalist. I was a journalist, okay. In Scrublands, he turns up at this traumatised town. A priest has gone out and shot five people dead um, and has then killed himself. And a year later, Martin is sent off to do a story, an anniversary story on how the town's coping. I've done stories like that. I went to Aceh in Indonesia a year after the, the tsunami there. Uh, probably more relevantly, I, I, I did a story in East Texas where some white extremists had killed an African-American man called James Bird Jr. They tied him to a back of a pickup truck and dragged him until he was dead. It was an infamous story. It shocked America, shocked the world. And I went there and did a story of how, what was happening in the town. But that story was all about race. It was a racially segregated town. Um, and that plays no part at all in Scrublands. It was just the idea of the journalist going to the town. But the priest shooting people, I'm not entirely sure where that came from. Certainly it's not based on any real, uh, real event. One, um, one thing where I think the ideas start coming from is the setting, the location of the book, because I do feel that setting is incredibly important, not just in crime fiction, but in fiction in generally, because what you're doing with the author is you're inviting people to leave, you know, real life, daily life, and enter a new world. So even if you're setting a book in, you know, London or Edinburgh or whatever, it's always an imagined city it may be geographically accurate but it's always it, it, you know that the, the author is putting a certain slant on it so i was very fortunate scrublands are set it's a fictional town but it's a real landscape and it's a place where i spent about a week when i was doing that first book the river and i i always knew if i wrote some fiction it'd be a great location because the town i stayed in was an irrigation town, but this was during the worst drought in European history in Australia. A drought so bad 
that there was not a drop of water in the river. So imagine a town whose economy is solely based on irrigation and it has no water. Um, desperate people walking off farms, banks foreclosing, suicides, this tough sort of resilience, this gallows humour. So it gave me this, this world sort of ready-made to, to get into. Um, my second book, Silver, is based up along the north coast of New South Wales, very different um, environment, Boomtown. So the book's about real estate speculation and greed. That, that's part of the thing. Third book, Trust, set in Sydney. So real city, um, but a, a, a take on the setting. So I think, I think you get the setting, you get the characters moving, and then I think the ideas for the plot sort of come with that. It's sort of one reinforces the other and hopefully by the end you know that the, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts it's funny what you were saying earlier about um you know australian fiction and and the difficulty that an author can have there when you know what you're saying there about australia is such a it has that, that diversity of you know you have your massive multicultural cities but you also have the, the outback which is completely sparse and it's a completely as you say it's almost like a different if, if you if you view the settings as a character it's a completely different different sort of character that you're dealing with there and it seems to me there's a, a rich seam of of stuff there that could be mined but it, as you say there isn't that many australian set things that that i that i can think of off the top of my head I mean, there's a few. There was an Eric Bana film recently. I think it was at the Dry or something like that. It was it was really good. But you know, it in a way that something like um, I can't remember the name of the film now. But you know, an American film set in the set in the Midwest and it's a tough, small little town and things like that. Australia seems to me to have the same sort of uh, places that could could be a compelling setting, but they don't they don't seem to get used as much. It's been a, a big change uh, in the last few years. Um, Michael Robotham, the, the very successful and well-known Australian crime writer, um, all his books, I think, are still set in the UK. Um, I've heard him say that he wrote a book that was considered, set in Australia, considered for publication by Penguin, but it... it it failed at the acquisition meeting by one vote because it was set in Australia. And they said, if you, if you set it in the UK, you might have a chance. And then he wrote Suspect, which was then subject to a bidding war at the London Book Fair and launched his career. It was about 20 years ago. Um, now, for Michael, that was fine because he lived in London uh, at that stage um, for some time. He now lives in Australia, but still... You know, still sets his books in the UK. And there was this belief that not only would not readers in the UK or the US be interested in reading books set in Australia, neither would Australians. So great was the, the cultural cringe, as we call it, the deference to the UK <laughs> and the US. So there, there was this guy, when I was doing a bit of research into the world of Australian kind, there was a writer called Carter Brown, and it was a sort of pseudonym, but he wrote like oh, 500 books. 
like novels, you know. He 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 um he, he had a, a contract at one stage that said he he'd write two novels and a novella every month. And <laughs> when asked about this, he said he said his his greatest problem was procrastination. Uh, anyway, he 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 never said I don't I'm not sure if he ever set a book in Australia. He set these these um, detective series in Los Angeles. Um, he wrote the first thirty books before he'd been to America. I mean that was so that was this is back in 1930s, 40s, 50s. Yeah. So there was this view, and publishing is quite fashion driven. So you know some something original come out and then there's lots of copies. So the film that you mentioned, Marco, The Dry. Mm-hmm is based on a book by Jane Harper. And it has done amazingly well in the UK, in the US, in the in translation. It came out about 2016. And because it was so successful, it, it won, it was a debut book, but it won the UK uh, Crime Writers Association Gold Dagger. And it won all sorts of plaudits in the US. And my book, Scrublands, this came after that, mm-hmm. I, I was actually unaware of the dry. Um, and I think that opened a lot of doors for me and has subsequently opened the doors for, um, for other Australian crime writers, crime writers in particular, setting books in that world. Uh, not sure if you include Leo Moriarty as mm-hmm. a sort of a, like a traditional crime writer, it's a sort of domestic noir or something they, they call it. But obviously she's very successful. Her her books are mainly, I think, set in, in Sydney on the northern beaches, but that means they transfer when they make the TV films, they translate to California very yeah. well. So there, there seems to be just in the last 10 years a lot of interest, um, probably more in the UK than in the US, but there's... And, uh, there's a writer called Gary Disher who's very popular in translation in Germany. Michael Robotham is very popular in Germany too. Um, so it does it does seem to have changed. I think maybe it's got a bit to do with Netflix and people just seeing yeah. you know, that phenomenon, just seeing you know subtitled stories, stories set in other countries, and maybe even a little bit to the success of Scandi Noir, that you know a little bit of an exotic location is an addition, uh, is an attraction, not, not a disincentive. So is this, is this, you think, the, you know, are we seeing a moment for Australian crime writing where it will continue to grow, we're going to continue to see more authors come forward? You know, we've, as you see, we've seen Jane Harper, Leanne Moriarty, et cetera, more people like that coming forward, more names, more stories set there, more, more of a willingness for people to explore these stories where they might not have done so in the past. Look, I, I, I think so. Um, I think the publishing industry in the UK and the critics in the UK are now open to the, to the idea. That, of course, it goes without saying that not every book that comes out of Australia is going to be a great book, but um, there is a lot of crime authors here. My publisher, Alan and Unwin in Australia, wrote an un, just ran an unpublished manuscript prize for the first time for crime writing they got 330 manuscripts um 
there's an organisation here called Sisters in Crime for female writers. They'll run a, something like that. They'll get 80 submissions. Uh, we just had, in this sort of more sort of COVID-friendly times, we had a crime fiction festival, four-day festival in Sydney at the State Library just last week. And there was, you know, 30 or 40 writers there. So it's, a, it's you know, for, for a relatively small population, it's, it's very healthy. And the other thing to be said is crime readers, some of them are voracious. They'll read 100 books yeah. a year. They'll read 150 books a year. And so they're, they're willing to try you know, new, new new things. Yeah, and and the the speaking of sort of it, turning these things into into TV or film, Scrublands was had the film deal snapped up as well. Um, is is anything happening with that just now? Um, it's an interesting process in that <laughs> typically I hear nothing for months. For months for me. <laughs> I do believe it's being developed. They've hired you know they've got a writers' room. They're writing scripts and developing. It's a bit of a chicken and the egg thing for yeah. getting the money to develop and then, you know, attracting um, talent to be as- to be associated with it. Um, so, look, it seems to be it seems to be going along well, but you know, I won't believe it until it, you know yeah. the first day of filming. <laughs> <laughs> and is there any other type of writing that you'd like to try yourself? Would you, would you like to try your hand at writing a, a script or a graphic novel or something? No, I'm not interested in tr- in trying to write for the screen. Um, in some ways, I've been there and done that with the television stuff. Prob- pro- I probably know enough to realise how little I know and then it'd be better to leave any transformation <laughs> to, the, to the experts. Um, I'm of the mind that I just want to uh, concentrate on writing books. So... Audible here in Australia approaches writers who are reasonably successful is a sort of cash on the barrel held type deal. So it's not royalty based. We'll give you this much money and to write an original Audible story for us. You know, somewhere, say, between four and five hours. So whereas my books, you know, the audio books are maybe 12 or 13 hours. Yeah. So it's like a novella. Um, and for a lot of writers, that's tempting because it's money up front and, you know, relatively less work. But I'm not actually too tempted by that because I, I, I figure having been so incredibly fortunate to be in the position I am in where I can actually write books for a living. I mean, there are so many very good writers who cannot afford to do it that I want to make the most of it. And I want to get better at what I do. And uh, what what is it? so obviously Opal King, uh, Country is is out in the UK in January, I think. Um, but after that, have you got what's coming next? Is there more Martin Scarsden in the pipeline, or will it be more sort of standalone stuff? Look, I hope um, I hope I will get back to Martin. But what's happened? I set out to to write Opal Country as a standalone, and I think I think it's been marketed as a standalone. But you know, the characters got their teeth into me, and so even by the time I was finishing it, I was working away. You know, starting to formulate ideas. I'm trying to already sort of fermenting away in my brain, 
And so this year we had, uh, you know, the second wave of uh, coronavirus came through. We were, where I live, we were pretty much free of it for a year. But then it came in and, but also vaccines started. So I knew that at some point, like about now, everything's going to open up again, you know, for Christmas, for summer. So I went, well, if I'm in lockdown, I have to make the most of it. So I'm actually well into writing a follow-up book to Opal Country. Again, you'd be able to read it as a standalone. Remembering that for Opal Country, I probably signed off on the last edit in maybe July. Yeah. So that's already, you know, five months ago. What was the last book that you read? Um, I read Those Who Perish, um, which hasn't been published yet. It's an advanced copy by an Australian crime writer called Emma Viskich. Um, She's been shortlisted for the UK Crime Writers Association um, New Blood Dagger and Gold Dagger. It's the fourth in a series. Fantastic, fantastic book. Incredibly atmospheric. Um, Has a a deaf protagonist. So she learnt to sign so she could get into that world. And also gives some some really good insights into um, Aboriginal culture in Victoria so that yeah look that's a that's a really good book um I'm just (laughs) staring at myself trying to remember what else I've read (laughs) oh 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 there's another new book that's coming out so this is a crime book set in an outback type of town in Australia so I guess it's sort of a bit like scrublands maybe a bit like opal country a bit like the dry um a young writer I just met at last week Haley Scrivener here it's called Dirt Town in America it will be called Dirt Creek she's just signed a massive global deal with Pam McMillan so that will be coming to the UK too don't know when though maybe halfway through next year I'm not sure Excellent. Ooh, so sorry, I've just told you two books about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. So, something to watch out for, though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so certainly that trend is continuing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and what about the last film that you watched? Oh, my God. <laughs> this is a question where people's minds always were completely blank and <laughs> can't think of anything they've watched. The well, last you know, the cinemas weren't really open for a year. So uh, a film... Um, my daughter and I have been sort of consuming Doctor Who. Um, but there was one. Um, no, sorry, blank. No, <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. We'll take. We'll take. We'll take. We'll take Doctor Who as the answer for that. One. That's all right. And uh, the very, very last thing we always do is a super quick fire, either or. And I always say there's no right answers here apart from one. So we'll start off with maybe a, a bit of a tough one: uh, Jane Harper or Leanne Moriarty. Jane Harper. Um, Night Owl or Early Bird? Night Owl. Uh, TV or cinema? Streaming, neither. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, on a device somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah fair enough. Um, music on or music off when you're writing? Uh, 
uh, music. Nice. And the uh, last one, real book or ebook? Real book. Ah, uh, you can That's... see from his bookshelf. I know it's such a massive bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> no one will lose that. Um, I, I, every now and then, I do, I do read a, a an able. Um, it's 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 not terrible. It's just I prefer the real one. <laughs> I'll cool. take it. Thanks very much to Chris for coming on there. I thought I thought that was a really interesting chat. And what you know, throwing out uh, fifty thousand words, uh, 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 rewriting it in, in three weeks yeah. for Scrublands is, is some achievement there. Um, I know it's and it, it's a testament to the fact that you know you don't get you can't get too attached to your work, and because if you have to do that, you have to do that. And just and just you're all serving the the beasts it's all in service of the book and i think that's right but i think it's very, it is a very difficult thing to do and obviously as he said being a journalist maybe he understood that he didn't need to be as mm-hmm. attached to these things but um it is very difficult especially if you're starting out writing it, you know it takes so long to to construct yeah. something that you can be sort of happy with to then decide that a huge chunk of it just needs to um, be sliced out can be can be quite difficult to actually make that yeah. decision. It's a lot easier to try and make something work than it is to say actually yeah. just forget all this and start again. Yeah. And um, but sometimes that is what you have to do. And yeah, and he's always done it a few times. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's it. it works for him. Uh, so yeah, you too can become an international bestseller <laughs> if, just you, start if again. you just start throwing out your work <laughs> and starting again. Uh, so yeah, thanks very much to Chris. And Opal Country is out on the sixth of January in the UK. Um, I'm, I'm sure around the rest of the world around the same time as Treasure and Dirt, as, as yeah. you said at the yeah. start. Uh, and that's us for the next few weeks. Yeah, that, We've got to have some well-deserved time. That's off. right, yeah. So um, this is episode 10 of season 9 as we divide this show into seasons for no real reason. <laughs> I'm still not sure why yeah, we did exactly. that. <laughs> but, um, uh, so that means that we are going to take a few weeks off just to uh, sort of recover, but also try and get more guests for the next episode so we've mm-hmm. got some great guests to come back with so we hope you all have a, a great new year and start the year well and we'll catch up with you again in february and before i go one thing that could would start our year off very well Tarek, would be if people <laughs> wanted to leave us a lovely five-star review or rating on your favorite podcast app because that does help us secure great guests like chris so uh, we'd really appreciate it if you could take the time to do that it's funny you say that because my new year's resolution is actually to send in a question to various podcasts and if others out there have similar um uh, inclinations you can always get in touch with us by sending us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk or a tweet to at right underscore gear and you know take that off your list get it exactly done. there's one. an easy Go new year's resolution for you yeah exactly <laughs> exactly feel good about yourself achievement so it's great <laughs> but anyway that that's it from us for now and we'll see you at the start of february hopefully see you later